Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Common to several of the previous podcast episodes has been this desire to define terms. When do they need to be redefined? And when are we drawing too heavy of a distinction between things that are fluid? Well, today is no different. We will listen to a portion of a roundtable talk between Dr. Yeshaya Gruber and Dr. Bruce Chilton. He is the Bernard Eidings Bell Professor of Philosophy and Religion and Executive Director of the Institute of Advanced Theology at Bard College, as well as being an ordained Anglican priest. In their conversation titled, Jesus, Paul, Resurrection, and History, they obviously do not shy away from some complex ideas related to Jewish context and historical settings. Let's start with a look at the term rabbi, and then move on to consider Paul's description of Rabbi Jesus. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Thank you for that question. I think it is an important one and gets at the whole issue of anachronism in historical study. Obviously, you could take a term such as rabbi, and if you didn't apply it within the first century context, the result would be a serious distortion, since there is nothing like programmatic ordination or seminary study in second century Judaism. And in any case, rabbis as we know them are not in the first century the commanding figures in Judaism that they later became. While the second temple itself stood, insofar as there was a preeminent institution, it was the temple itself and therefore the priesthood. So one has to accommodate oneself to really quite a different uh, power and class dynamic whenever you look at issues within the first century. However, having said that, uh, my reason for using the term rabbi in association with Jesus is a simple one. And that is that when Jesus is addressed in the New Testament, whether by his followers or by those who don't follow him, the overwhelmingly popular title is that of rabbi. He's called that more than he's called prophet, more than he's called Christ, more than he's called son of God. So from the point of view of historical study, one wants to begin with the way in which the the figure is actually perceived within his own time. Uh, And so I think that results in a straightforward historical finding. Thank you. And would you say the same or a similar perhaps reasoning applies to Paul? as well. In in the case of Paul, it is a similar kind of reasoning, but not the same reasoning, uh, because we don't have examples as we have in the Gospels 
of those around Paul interacting with him as those around Jesus interacted with Jesus. Uh, likewise, Paul does not appear within his own correspondence as a figure who has that kind of exchange with those outside the movement. Uh, the use of the term rabbi for Paul has more to do with his background. The fact that he was brought up by his own testimony as a practitioner of Judaism in Tarsus, uh, the fact that he understood Aramaic, the fact that he self-identified as being a Pharisee, and because of that commitment, uh, traveled to Jerusalem, where he actually became one of the persecutors of the followers of Jesus. All of that puts him into the rabbinic category of the first century. In your book on Paul, you describe Pharisaism as a town and city movement. So could you unpack this a little bit for us? You know, what's the difference for a Jew of the first century growing up in a rural Galilean environment or in a town, city, et cetera? Thank you. That's a very appropriate question from the point of view of initial historical study. That is understanding the context uh, within which a figure operates. Uh, and so, so let's use the contrast between Jesus and Paul for just a moment. Uh, Paul grows up in a cosmopolitan environment, Tarsus in the province of Cilicia, that is in present-day Turkey, in a multicultural environment in which Judaism is thriving, but Judaism also has to identify itself over and against many other different kinds of cultures and religious movements. Uh, this, I think, is one reason for which Paul, as a young man, identified himself as a Pharisee. That is, it's one of the ways in which it's possible in an urban environment to establish a sense of self in relation to the social world. I would contrast that with the environment of a hamlet, which is all Nazareth really was, in Galilee, where you do not have the same literal structures. That is to say, you don't have, as far as we know, an actual built synagogue. You don't have the sort of dedication to immersion in mikvaot, bathing pools, uh, that we find in more urban environments. Uh, in Judea, but also in Galilee. And one reason for that is social identification in rural Galilee simply comes with where you live. These very small villages lived on the basis of subsistence farming, and they were basically what I would describe as monocultural. In other words, they live within the practice of Judaism on a day-to-day -day basis. One, one doesn't have to ask oneself, <laughs> what kind of butcher should I go to? Uh, should it be someone who practices cash roots or not in a place such as Nazareth? Because you don't actually have choice from the point of view of the way in which you practice on a regular basis. In an urban environment, it requires much, much more self-consciousness. That's why it is fascinating that uh, Jesus, when he comes into contact uh, with Pharisees within the descriptions 
in the Gospels comes into contact with them outside Nazareth, in places like Capernaum, a fishing town, uh, which is still very small by the com- by comparison, say, with Tarsus, but highly developed as compared to Nazareth. Oh, I do love a good cultural comparison built on the influences of your environment. This is a valuable exercise to do, say, between three places important to Jesus, Nazareth, Capernaum, and Jerusalem. They are each so very unique in geography, culture, accessibility to international news, financial opportunities, and even the ingrained Israelite memory held onto by the ground. And once you study the place, you will find that the conversations Jesus has with people in those places changes. It is fascinating. Back to this particular roundtable talk, though. In his writings, Dr. Bruce Chilton views Paul as one who popularized a version of Rabbi Jesus's message. And he talks about the language of Paul and how he uses ideas of Stoicism to talk about cosmic revelation. And the form Paul uses allows for these ideas of Rabbi Jesus to go beyond Judea and the Jewish diaspora into the larger empire. So Dr. Gruber asked what his opinion was about if Paul consciously used such vocabulary or if the words are simply reflecting the influence the Greco-Roman world had on Paul. If we look even in the time prior to Paul, we can see considerable interest in ideas of Greek philosophy among what I would call Jewish intellectuals. Uh, And I would put Paul in the the category of intellectual, which is why the subtitle of that book is not intimate, but as you rightly say, intellectual, because I think he actually framed his understanding of himself in intellectual terms. Uh, It's amazing how little he says about himself in writing so voluminously about what he thought. And the reason for that, I think, is this is the way in which he comes to his own sense of identity. And in doing that, he reflects a movement in Jewish thought. And I look especially to Philo of Alexandria, who lived somewhat before the time of Jesus and before the time of Paul. In that case, Philo makes a beautiful, passionate argument through an extensive commentary on the Torah, whose function is to insist that you really can't understand the Torah without Stoicism and Plato, and you can't understand Stoicism and Plato without the Torah. Uh, In the case of Philo, it would not, I think, in the least be feasible to try to argue that he was artificially trying to appropriate philosophy or that he was trying artificially to appropriate Judaism. He really saw them as together, as he wrote in Alexandria. And he was one representative of a very widespread intellectual movement, which was ripe by the first century, and which promoted the later spread of Christianity, that saw the conception of a single God 
who also was concerned with ethics as being superior to the understanding of Greco-Roman pantheism. So when you have thinkers of that kind about, I think it becomes much easier to understand Paul, who himself was brought up, as I mentioned earlier, in Tarsus, which itself was a center of Stoicism. Uh, Athenodorus, who had been the emperor's tutor, uh, when he came to retire, asked for the position to become mayor of Tarsus. And he promoted the local university. Now, again, I say university, that doesn't mean there were large brick buildings and there was a chancellor and a board of trustees. It was a public program of lectures that brought in speakers from different parts of the empire. And by a very, very substantial proportion, they represented Stoicism more than they did other forms of philosophy. So when Paul, for example, uses the analogy of Christ being a body of which believers form different parts, and we can compare that to Stoic understandings of the body as referring to the nature of what we now would call the body politic, that is not surprising. It doesn't mean that Paul is deliberately using that analogy in order to be in fashion, I think that's one of the ways in which uh, he organically thinks. They then branch into a very long discussion of finding threads of thought woven together to form the Gospels. And while we are not going to dive into that right now, you can go back and listen to the Roundtable Talk, we will consider the obvious omission of Paul from the Gospels. It's rather curious when you think about it, right? Because Paul's writings were in circulation before the Gospels were even written down. So there could have been references to similar ideas that Paul had. So does Dr. Chilton have an idea about why those are not present in the Gospels? You know, attempts have been made uh, in the past to argue that there was some particular relationship between the Gospel according to Mark and Paul. Uh, And that literature has intrigued me over the years. But as I went through the evidence that was adduced in favor of that, what I noticed was that scholars who were in favor of that point of view were counting anything pro-Hellenistic as being Pauline. But of course, Paul was not the only one of the apostles who was interested in particular in Gentiles in the diaspora, uh, there was also Barnabas. And within the understanding of what purity really is, this is in Mark chapter 7, the idea that purity should be understood fundamentally as a moral issue, uh, that appears to be much more aligned with the teaching of Barnabas than anyone else. Which means that Paul is prominent by his absence uh, from my list of traditional streams. We know he could have been included. That is, uh, within Paul's letters, there are references to baptism, to Eucharist, to resurrection, to Jesus' teaching concerning marriage. Couldn't we have used some of that material? I mean, if, if you or I were making a gospel, would we not have seen that as being very important 
first century evidence? We probably would have, but Paul was also a highly controversial figure. So although uh, the gospels are, I think, ecumenical in the sense that they are genuinely bringing these streams together, there are certain limits of ecumenism. Hmm. Uh, and one of the things they are measuring is that by the end of the first century, when they were put together, Paul really was not yet what he became in the second century, namely the apostle. Uh, he was still very much in a minority position. I do think, as I think virtually everyone does, that uh, Luke Acts should be seen as a unit. Uh, the work is presented in that way by means of the preface that begins Luke itself and the preface that begins Acts. Luke is also, in its own way, quite elegantly written. Uh, that is to say that uh, if there is a synoptic gospel that would be at home within the Greco-Roman literature of the time, it would be the gospel according to Luke. And if we were looking for an example of a literature that you might compare to the later Hellenistic work on Apollonius of Tyana, who was a great healer and philosopher, uh, I think the book of Acts would actually be an apt comparison. So here is someone who has skill within the understanding of history in the ancient world. Of course, the ancient world had an understanding of history, which was not our own. It had to do with bringing materials together, showing respect for them, uh, but also attempting to harmonize them which Luke does both in the gospel and in Acts, that sometimes results in a picture which is of greater peace within the church uh, than we can see actually existed uh, when we look, say, at the letters of Paul. We might have thought, if we only had the book of Acts, that uh, there were only disagreements over personnel uh, that, that caused Paul and Barnabas, for example, to go their separate ways over whether Mark ought to go along with them uh, on their missionary journey. Whereas, in fact, we know that these differences were much deeper. Uh, and we can see this when Paul actually refers to Barnabas taken up in the hypocrisy of the people whom he calls the circumcision party in Galatia. So yes, we can see that Luke is not giving us unvarnished history. Uh, it is much more like what I would call apologetic history. That is, it's a history which is developed for the sake of an argument. Uh, and the argument is that the development of this entire movement from before the birth of Jesus until the time that Paul was in Rome, the two bookends of Luke-Acts. Through all of that time, what was happening is that the Spirit of God was steadily widening its influence from Jerusalem outward, and it was going to reach out to the entire world. It is a elegantly produced piece of work. I think what's going on in Luke is that the author has mastered the same methods of composition that you can see in Mark and Matthew, 
But it's taken a step further in order to reach in to this genre of apologetic history. So I, I think it's a powerful work, but a work also that you need to watch to be careful of, because sometimes he weaves people and events together too closely. And you can see also his concern for balance. So he gives you the conversion of Paul three times, uh, by the way, in three different versions. Uh, but then he also gives you the story of Peter being called by vision to the house of Cornelius three times. So he's being very careful about the balance of authority within the church of his time. And as a result of that, I also have to say, uh, and this uh, this brings me back to a very long contention with a distinguished scholar you have probably run across, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce. F.F. F. Bruce, as it turns out, uh, was the scholar who actually founded the department where I first had a tenured position. That was the University of Sheffield in England. And Fred was convinced that the picture of the Paul in Acts was the historical picture. And I am equally convinced that this is a laundered version of Paul. Uh, this is a Paul who preaches salvation history instead of the radical incursion of grace that we can see in his letters. So uh, he and I, whenever we met, would usually have a discussion over exactly that question. Having conversations like this, in which we do not always agree with everything everyone says, is very characteristic of Israel Bible Center. If you participate in our monthly online seminars, you will see the faculty discussing differing points of view on a large variety of issues. If you like these kinds of conversations and are not yet connected to the vast resources of IBC, consider enrolling as a student from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing the editing, the mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with us and being curious about all things Bible related. Bible related.